being a microphone for people who can't be in the room is a honor and a power that I take extremely seriously. It actually humbles me to the point where I get emotional because I know that through all my hard work and through everything that I've done, primarily since I was three, I've been made for such a time as this. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're still skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, we are very excited to have Tiffany R. Warren join us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the Chief Diversity Officer and Senior Vice President at Omnicom Group, one of the biggest marketing and advertising networks in the world. She's also the founder and president of AdColor, an organization that champions and advocates for diversity in the creative and tech industries. Tiffany, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you. This is a special treat. Danielle and I know Tiffany separately from two different organizations that we're involved in, that Tiffany's both involved in. Tiffany's involved in a lot of different things, and we're going to talk about how she she spends her time. Like, we each do one of these things. That's our each, like, one extracurricular, and you're in both of them. (laughs) And not only are you in both of them, but I'm sure that at least when I go to, like, the, the ad council boardings, Tiff knows everyone, and I'm like, I literally only know you. <laughs> I saw you. I saw when your first meeting, when I saw your face, I was like, she's so friendly and so sweet. And I immediately just like went to you. It was it was actually pretty cool because you know, like sometimes when you when you go into big meetings and there's a bunch of tables, you feel like high school. You're like, where? Yeah, I-? I still feel that way. I may know a lot of people, but I'm like okay, where are the cool kids sitting? And then I saw your face. I'm like, I'm going to sit over there. That's how I felt too. But you are just one of those people. I see you work the room and I am always like taking notes. So anyway, we are very excited to have you here. We're going to start out with a basic question. Skim your resume for us. Oh my God. Wow. And you know, actually I do this. So this is easy. Well, I came into the world, the advertising world as an account executive at Hill Holiday. So I'm from Boston, Boston Strong, Boston Girl and graduated from Bentley University and knew immediately almost upon graduation that I wanted to work in advertising. So I cut my teeth in in the Boston advertising agencies that we all know and love, Arnold Worldwide, Hill Holiday. And then upon being part of that, I realized that I was a very small group of multicultural professionals, not only in the Boston advertising scene, but in the agencies that I worked. So I wanted to work outside to fix what was inside. And so I went to the four A's and headed up diversity. I was 25 years old. I got the job on my 25th birthday. I not only got the job on my 25th birthday, I also signed a lease, which everyone said, either you had a guardian angel or someone prayed on you, prayed for you. Um, But I signed a lease for a beautiful Brooklyn walk up in uh, Fort Greene and spent my formative early years in New York there working for the four A's in a lot of cases, at least the first couple of years. The interns that I was responsible for managing were only two to three years younger than me. So that was surreal to be able to turn around my experience like right away and provide them with an opportunity to learn. And then I went back into the agency, particularly the one that gave me so much of what I feel like I've come to learn about management, Arnold Worldwide. Uh, So I took on the job as head of diversity there. And then 
that is where I grew Ad Color and formed Ad Color and then was recruited to head up diversity for a bigger network called Omnicom Group. What is something that no one knows about you? We wouldn't find in any of your professional bios or LinkedIn. I mean, I think what you don't find in bios is maybe certain like pain points that have happened in your life. I think most people will say hobbies, I believe. Um, but I think what isn't in my bio, but has informed me in everything that I do is that, you know, when I was two, my parents divorced. And so I grew up to some extent without a father. He then passed away when I was really, you know, I was 26. I had just started at the four A's, but then upon him passing, I found out I had seven younger brothers. Um, and so it is in my bio that I have, I'm the oldest of 10. I think people think, and they always congratulate my mom when they meet her. My mom is like, whoa, I only had three, calm down. <laughs> um, so you know, I found out I had seven brothers. And so my, the Warren tribe grew from three to 10 overnight. I never knew that you found out at that point in your life. Wow. Yeah. I, I found out I had seven siblings at 26. Do you have a relationship with them? They were really young. Some of them were really young when my dad passed and I'm close to many of them, but I think in a big family, like when you have 10 siblings and eight of them are, are men, they're all very unique personalities. And so I think the younger ones, I have strong formative relationships with because they were eight, and nine when he passed. And then the older ones were kind of in their teens and sort of on their way um, into launching their lives. But, you know, I'm close with a majority of my siblings. I think anyone can attest to that. Siblings are Ooh, special people. Um, and, but yeah, you know, to find out at 26, I was old enough to appreciate the gifts that I was given because of these new relationships. And so I, I took hold of it super quickly. My mom was like, you dived into being an older sister. Like you dive into like, you know, creating ad color or a project. You wanted to be the best at it. Um, so I work on it every day, but um, I'm really grateful for all my siblings. That's amazing. I really, I thought you all grew up together. That's incredible. I will have to say, I was like, how could you be sane and grow up in a house with 10 kids? But I'm glad that you had a little bit of a buffer. No, you know, what's interesting. It's so three of us are East coast and then the other seven are, are West coast. And so our personalities could not be any more different. But what I told people is I didn't know my dad. I didn't have a relationship, but through talking with the boys and like getting to know them and seeing them grow into men, like, I really actually know who my dad is. And that's been the biggest gift because I always wondered, what did I get from my dad? And yeah. getting to know my brothers, I know exactly what what gifts I, I got from my dad and, and certainly what gifts I got from my mom. It's amazing. Wow. So I want to dig in a little bit. You are known as such a thought leader in the diversity space. And, you know, when our team saw that we were speaking to you this week, everyone freaked out. Like we were talking, you know, we're talking to a celebrity. And I think... What I'm actually most fascinated by when we go back to like the 25-year-old youth at this huge job, even go back before that, how did you actually carve out a role and a position for yourself that many companies didn't have roles for? There weren't really many examples to look for. And so I really want to understand how you took an interest and a passion, and, a, and I think you called it like a calling around working in diversity and inclusion and turn it into your career. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward answer. You know, I, I have been a recipient and or participant in some of the biggest national diversity programs. And then my education was informed by scholarships received because I'm a person of color. So since two and a half years old, and I still have the progress report, you know, where they're talking about me and they're saying, you know, Tiffany likes the quiet ones. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like two and a half, three-year-old Tiffany, like walking around Head Start trying to 
I don't know, was I starting a protest? I don't know what I was doing, but the way that the progress report made it seem is that I pretty much had it that early in terms of understanding and questioning why am I treated a certain way because of my skin color. So when your whole life is informed by that, maybe it was even informed um, in where I was in the hospital in the 70s, I don't know. Um, But I was born across the street from the school that I eventually went to. So to think of my mom holding me while looking out the window at, you know, the manicured lawns of the Windsor School not even thinking that her daughter someday is going to, you know, matriculate there and spend seven years of her life growing into this diversity professional. And I, I do think that there were key pivotal like moments in my, my life that really informed me. It was almost like lights in a dark room. And I just had to follow them because I knew even when I was in inroads, which is an industry internship program that places young people of color in business and marketing, I had my internship at Verizon. And I knew even being part of Inroads, I was like, I love the way this feels. I love the fact that this woman, her name was Sandy Branker at Inroads at Verizon, had the job of making us feel important and special within a corporate environment. She was energetic. She was excited to come to work. And so I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to get there because I want to feel like she feels when she comes into work. And so I always had it in the back of my mind. And so even when I started working in an agency, I questioned why there weren't more diverse people. And I went directly to the president and had the conversation and, you know, people were grasping their pearls. Like, how can you just go and talk to the president and set up a meeting? I'm like, well, why not? Because that, that idea of speaking directly to authority and power about things that are not going well or people not being accounted for was something I had been doing apparently since, you know, I was three. And so, you know, with stories from my family and my mom, I put in, I put the pieces together that I've basically had a blueprint for this and was destined for this. Even the first or second generation of my family were there were teachers, nurses, were all in some sort sort of service. So my calling happened to be diversity in corporate America. Someone else in my family would be um, would be a teacher or a nurse. So it's it, it's kind of it's kind of generational and um, some would say genetic, but I knew probably at 11 that I was going to do this work. I just didn't know what it was called. I am hearing this and in so many ways, just kind of struck by the confidence that you have. Did you define yourself as a confident person growing up? No, I did not. I absolutely did not. Like I kept journals and now I go back and read them and I like, I cringe because I was like... (laughs) Someday he'll pay attention to me. <laughs> a strong woman that I am. And then I moved from writing the, the journals to like doing voice diaries. I melt when I listen to myself. I'm, and I want to yell at myself being like, you are so dope. You are amazing. <laughs> this was at like 21. I'm, I'm doing these voice diaries. And I, I had so much angst and so much concern about the gap in my tooth and so much concern that I cut my hair. And it made me look like a boy and no one would love me. I mean, I look back now, I'm like, girl, you, you, you were ahead of your time. That's what I wish I could tell myself. I want to contrast that with the fact that you were in college, you were the president of the Black United Body at Bentley. You called it, quote, I gave you an MBA in leadership. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people listening, it's like, you know, that sounds like, oh my gosh, she knew what she wanted to do and she had no problems going forward. How did you, even at that young age, where did you have 
Was it the support system? Was it just kind of like this internal drive to not only make a difference, but do it in terms of a leadership position? Yeah. I mean, it was a couple things. So super fan of Oprah. And she always said, helping others is, is your path to success. And that never left me. And so I took it literally. I was like, oh, so helping others leads to success. And so every time that I've applied that, I've come out the other end stronger, more defined, better leader. My leadership development really happened in high school and connecting with other amazing first-generation college goers, even first-generation Americans. I grew up in Roxbury, a part of the city that is a melting part for sure, but people, when they think about it, think it's predominantly African-American. But I grew up with Haitian, Cape Verdean, Puerto Rican, the sounds, the music, the food, that all surrounded me. And then in my family, there was touches of the Caribbean heritage that my grandmother came from. And then I would go visit my other grandmother in Dorchester, and she's decidedly you know, from the South. And so it's collard greens and curry goat. Like that is my upbringing. And then, you know, being a black Catholic, which is, you know, apparently a chupacabra, you can't, you know, when I say I'm a black Catholic, everyone's like, really? There's black people in the cat? Yes, there is. And I went to church for 13, 14 years until I went on a quest of self-discovery. But I say all that to say is that I had a lot of leadership opportunities along the way. I met my best friend from picking up a flyer off the ground for a Catholic youth convention. And I, it was $5 to go. I begged my mom to give me the money. I went and I met my friends who I'm 30 years, 30 something years later, I'm still friends with. And they have gone on to become senators, the ch- chief economic development officer for the city of Boston, um, an M&A lawyer. And we all came from a place of making our parents proud, but being the first generation to go to college. So when you have no choice, but you don't look back, you move forward and you have no choice but to bring your whole family along. Leadership is like, I don't know, leadership feels like it's your constant companion. And I've always told people, I got asked this question before, what's your constant companions? I'm like, uh, accountability and responsibility, being the oldest. Those are my two best friends that I carry with me everywhere. But then the leadership part comes in the fact that I've always maintained this way of I'm seeking out leadership opportunities for myself, but also in the meantime, figuring out when I get in this position, How can I bring others along with me or give people any sort of wisdom so that they avoid the landmines that I stepped on? You know, what is a chief diversity officer? What isn't it? (laughs) It's like, well, in advertising, you know, I was one of the first three. And so I tip the hat to Heida Gardner, who was the first. And then Sandra Sims Williams. I came into the role knowing that I was part of a group of women who would define and change how people see diversity, equity, and inclusion in an industry that is super powerful and super responsible for changing the world. I mean, that's a heavy burden to bear, but I knew that immediately. So a chief diversity officer, particularly as it, and it probably changed within the last two weeks, primarily our responsibility is to create a culture and look at systems of inequity within a corporate structure. And now the spotlight on corporate America is even hotter because there's articles that have come out in the last two weeks that have been really consequential about has corporate America failed Black America? Have these programs just really been that? And what's the next steps? And what what do we do next? And so part of my role too is to evolve as a CDO and not just focus on what it used to be, but what it can be, the power it can have. And being able to be at at the table of power within organizations whether it's Ad Council, GLAD, 
the boards that I serve on and being a voice for, not the voiceless, because people are not voiceless, but being a microphone for people who can't be in the room is a honor and a power that I take extremely seriously. It actually humbles me to the point where I get emotional because I know that through all my hard work and through everything that I've done, primarily since I was three, I've been made for such a time as this. And that phrase alone is the thing that keeps me strong every day. You are made for such a time as this. And this role is for such a time as this. And I appeal to all the CDOs to step up and be unafraid to use that seat that they've been given to create more seats at the table. We're recording this about two and a half weeks, nearly three weeks after the murder of George Floyd. And we're all going as a country through a much needed reckoning. And we as CEOs are taking a much needed hard look at where we have failed and where we need to do better. And one of the things that I'm really trying to understand, and I know we're not the only company trying to understand, is how do you create diversity and inclusion programming that is not dependent on the one person in that role, like like you, you oversee a thousand agencies, the thousand agencies roll up into, into you. How do you put the onus on leaders and everyone in the company while also actually creating the programming within a company? And how do you strike that balance? I think the key really is, you know, one of the huge thoughts that have come to my mind is what does this role actually, what does it actually mean? What am I actually doing? And then I had this, I just wrote down this phrase that just came to my mind. It's like, am I teaching people to teach them how to treat me like a human? You get to the base of it of, is that what I'm doing? Because if that's what I'm doing, that's not okay. Because my thing is, we use the words diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's a, it's a nicer way of, of saying, is that what I'm doing? Am I teaching people to treat me like I'm human? I think when you take a stop and you're creating systems or you're creating things that stop people from achieving their goal, make them feel comfortable in a culture, it's really simple to take a look at those things around your company and say, is that a best practice or is that holding people back? Is that something that's executed by one person that's making 10 people feel a certain way? It's hard to root out and pinpoint you know, those that don't share the same values of you because you absolutely didn't start your company saying, I want people not to succeed. You started it so that you know women can have voices, that information is power, and that everyone deserves a chance to, um, to be th- their best selves. And if that's what you think, then you have to work backwards and make sure that every part of your company lines up to that value. And if it doesn't, then you have to be strong and figure out a way to change that or to get that out of your, uh, out of your system, literally. Because a, a company, I say, is the one chance, if you think about the way the work week goes, and I know that's shifted because of COVID. Um, But if you think about the eight hours that you spent physically in your company, that sometimes is your greatest chance for integration and for equality. Because when you leave, you go back to your neighborhoods, you go back to places that everybody may look the same, but your work environment, depending on where you work, is the greatest chance you have to really solve for diversity and inclusion in terms of the way you spend your time. Sunday, you go to church, you have a specific religion. Um, that could be diverse or not. But that's why getting this right within the walls of a company is so, so important because it people will take from that and then make changes, hopefully in their personal lives and the way that they interact with people that they come across. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that a job like yours can be, maybe the ratio changes, but can fluctuate from inspiring and as you said, like emotional 
and really just like feeling like you were making a difference and probably some of the most frustrating days you've ever had in your life. Yeah. How do you stay sane through that? How do you not lose patience? I ask the same question of anyone who's living in what they think is their calling. Because when you are in your calling, and I never not get emotional when I talk about this, but when you're in your calling, people have said this very cavalierly, oh, it doesn't feel like work. It literally does not feel like work. It lit- I don't know who gives me the energy, what gives me the energy, why I have a crazy amount of it. You know, I read this book called The Corporate Athlete and I was like, aha, uh-huh. okay, so maybe I've spent 40,000 hours at this and this is why it doesn't feel like work. You know, I spent more than 40,000 hours. But in all truthfulness, the one moment that changed my life and, you know, I talk about her incessantly because I'm so in love with her, you know, but my niece, when she was born, when new life happens or when you get a chance to be part of a new human's like when she was born, I swear to I'd like something just switched on in me. And I was like, Oh no, I'm not going to have her inherit a world where she has to fight like her aunt did. This is just not going to happen. And I know that people when I was born said the same thing. Oh no, Tiff is not going to inherit a world and where she has to fight as hard as I did. And so I think it's incumbent upon every generation to make things easier for the next. And I think we're really truly seeing that with the protest. There was a march with a bunch of 10-year-olds and I was just like, that blew my mind. It also made me really, really hopeful because if I had one-tenth of what they've been exposed to, they've had a generation of 9-11, of the 2008 crash, of a pandemic, and now you know a really defining moment in racial equality, the kind of leaders they're going to be like literally excites me. It makes me so happy. And so that to me is what is my fuel is generally, even with the naysayers, you know, not surprisingly, I guess, but I have haters. I have people who, you know, certainly don't get my way of doing things, think I should occupy this lane. I should be more radical, but I know in my heart. And when I wake up, my highest level on my hierarchy is integrity. Integrity is the first thing. And I sleep really well because I know that what I'm doing is contributing to what is a promised land of equity, but I'm doing it my way and others will do it their way. And then the fact that we're all doing it together at the same time, hopefully will lead to that, you know, that day of of true equity. I have to fiercely believe that that's coming because it fuels what I'm doing now. Going back to when you talked about questioning if your role is at the most basic form, teaching people how to treat you as a human. There is so much behind that. And it is not just how people show up professionally. It's how they grew up, where they came from, how do they think about themselves personally. There was an article today or this week about CEOs and executives being kind of like this therapist in chief role. How do you navigate the professional and personal part of people in your role? Because it is so tied in to DEI? And what's your advice, honestly, for leaders who are trying to navigate that? Yeah. It's something that has come with my job ever since I stepped foot in a corporate structure. Even as an intern, I remember because people saw this young Black woman and they put me in a, honestly, a desk in the middle of all these cubicles. And so I was pretty like out there and open, literally, but people would just come by and pour into me and talk to me. So I've never not known the role of just listening and observing. And part of the questions that I think we should all ask and be okay with reciprocating in sense of 
if you can ask the question, you can answer it is like in this moment, what are the three things that I, you know, if anybody comes to me, I just kind of ground it with, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? We, and then in those three questions, you get the insight. What am I hearing? They often talk about what their coworkers are facing and telling them what they're feeling, their own personal feelings, particularly in this moment. But it's a question that I've asked for the last like 20 years. And then what are you seeing? And that's being an eyewitness to, um, you know, microaggressions or, or being part of it or, or having indicated that they have themselves caused microaggressions or done them. And I think what this time is, is when we hear the word reckoning, it feels like there's supposed to be some corporal punishment at the end of it. But reckoning, even in a spiritual setting, is just self-directed reflection. What can you do to be better? Um, you know, Ad Color is releasing an article today about, so you want to be an ally. It's not, can you be? So you want to be. And in that article, it's really discussing, this is heavy work. I think allyship has been glamorized, had been, has been made to be very superficial. But a true ally, true advocate, gets in to the trenches with individuals and comes out better on the other side. And so I've said this time and time again, it's not a new com- concept, but be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think that we want to have a one, two, three, four step kind of program with this and then come out the other end stronger, better as an ally. But it's going to take an education because even myself, I said that there's two sources that at least in the last three years, probably more, but one recently has helped me unlearn and then in cases learn about what it means to be Black in America than I ever received in my 22 years of public and private education. And I go back and think about my history lessons, which spent all of maybe one class on the contributions of African-Americans to America and even Native Americans. I remember one time specifically, it was art history class. We were supposed to dissect a photo. And I think it was just mainly supposed to be about the painting itself. Like, was it canvas? Was it, what, what are the textures? But I noticed in the painting, and, it's, and I'm kicking myself for not remembering it, it was a picture of conquering soldiers taking over Native Americans, and it had to be in the Midwest or out West. And in the photo itself, the, the soldiers were, the sun was shining down upon them, bright, as if, to, as if to indicate what they're doing is great. The Native Americans in the photo were in the dark. That's what I questioned, was the use of light and dark. And that got me an additional meeting after the class because I may have embarrassed the professor. But art history is about critical theory. It's about learning how art is made. And art is in the eye of the beholder. And so those are the kind of moments where I think, you know, you get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if he did it right, it would have been, thank you so much for that critical point of view. Let's as a class discuss what that actually means. But he had to prepare himself and a reckoning for himself to understand and take away the shame. I wasn't talking about him. I was talking about the painting. So I think that happens a lot when you talk about this time is that people push shame and guilt and say, it's not my fault. It happened. That's not what we want to hear. What we want is the self-directed learning to become a better ally, remove all of that and just be open and transparent. And I promise you, you will come out on the other side, a better friend, mother, sister, daughter, coach, CEO, and any of the roles that you have, you can't unsee it. And so once you see it, you will become a better person. And I myself am always evolving and relearning myself because the same system that makes you feel that way 
makes me feel a certain way that I have to unlearn as well. Um, So we're all doing that kind of learning now. One of the things that we hear a lot when it comes to mainly white people talking about this is, am I going to say the wrong thing? And I think that really stifles conversation. What's your reaction to that when people say that, that they don't want to speak up because they're scared of saying the wrong thing? Yeah, that comes from fear. I think the right person, you know, I think anybody in your life who is of color, you know, obviously there's a, a very complicated mix of questions, but I have spent the better part of the week unpacking that question that I've received absolutely from my white allies. I mean, obviously there's something hugely different about the last two weeks, more so than maybe a month ago. But these problems existed for as long as you've known me. There's no wrong way to have a conversation about this. I think when you couple this kind of conversation with privilege, even privilege. I mean, I remember having a conversation about we need to talk about privilege at ad color this year right now. Because what I was seeing is that privilege was, was being co-opted to equal white nationalism. And people were deeply shamed to talk about it. But we brought privilege to the stage in a way that was given the opportunity for allies to understand that you can give away your privilege on Tuesday and you can wake up on Wednesday with the same amount of privilege. You can spend it the whole week and it's renewable, you know? And I can spend, you know, I go into a room where I may have some economic privilege over somebody else and understand that completely. And I had to check even my privileges, but this is the thing. I have some power, but not power power. And I think privilege when coupled with power for the use of keeping people down, that's, that's where the fear comes from. That's where it's like, I'm going to make a mistake because I'm being lumped in with this group. Privilege can be spent. It should be spent. And one of the key parts of privilege is saying, I have a question. It may seem crazy, you know, but I'm going to ask it and then listen. And then you're never going to make that, that mistake again or ask that dumb question again, because you got your, you, you became educated. I think people fear education. They fear being called out. They fear cancel culture. These are all things that are part of uh, the fear of not just asking the question to begin with. So I, I personally, because I've been put, I literally feel I've been put on this earth to do this. Like I've over the 22 years of my career have answered some pretty crazy questions. And when I think about the, the people who ask the questions and I look, up them, look at them now and how strong of an ally they are because that fear has been removed, I think, what's the end game? Do you want someone to feel afraid to ask you the question and continue to be in silence and be ignorant? No, what you want is to create stronger allies. And to your point, you know, the other part of it too, is it my job to educate you? No. But in that moment, if I'm your friend and if I'm your colleague, uh, it's important for me to share um, you know, my response to any question that you have. I want to talk about negotiation. We spent a lot of time on the show talking about how hard it is at times for women to negotiate and, and the best advice. When we talk a lot about that, it's coming from the fact around pay inequity. And we all know that women make less on the dollar than men, but black women make about 40 cents less to the dollar than white men. What is your best advice for negotiation in the workplace? Just talk us through, like, what was the hardest negotiation you had to do? (laughs) I know you've got a fancy job. I'm very curious. You know, what's interesting. Like I've been negotiating truthfully since my first internship. 
I think part of it is I grew up with a family that taught me self-awareness, taught me to love myself, to honor who I am, to honor the value of my intelligence. And then En-ROADS, the program I was in, gave the tools and the language to do that. So it was like this amazing thing that came together at the tender age of 17. So I've had roles where I've accepted, certainly, you know, I talk about my, my first role in advertising where I think I made like 24,000, but the summer before I made 11,000. So I was rich. I doubled what I made the summer before. So I was like, you can't tell me nothing. I am making 24. Last summer I made 11. Mind you, this is in the late nineties. And then I went to my next role and it doubled. So it's like, I didn't know what I didn't know. Okay. The doubling was great, but could I have tripled? Could I have asked for more? Because I was just thinking about my trajectory and I fortunately have had the opportunity because of what I do, which is very singular to say, this is what I'm worth. And then when I went to Omnicom, one of the things that I was adamant about was that I just started this not-for-profit. It's a baby. It was only two years old. And I said, I cannot do this. I have to do this and do this role. And I put that in my offer letter. I said, I have to concurrently do, do both because it was that important to me. And I'm glad I did that because now when I look at, you know, next year we'll be celebrating our 15th year and how important it was for me to be able to have the autonomy and know that I had expertise in doing the role that I was hired for. But then I had this calling to do this other role that would help the industry at large, then hopefully help the company that I'm a part of. And, and I think it's done both. But yeah, that was the one negotiation when I have this conversation and ask that question that I'm most proud of. Because some people don't want to bring those other parts to them in the role. It was important for me that they knew all parts of me, that they knew that I also brought with me all these board seats that I was on. And so I've brought those, those organizations with me to each job that I've had and I've added more. But it was important to say, I not only started this not-for-profit, but I sit on the board of the Ghetto Film School, the American Advertising Federation. These are super important to me. I don't want to you know, divest from them. I don't want to get off the board. And so I made that part of the conversation as well. So I have one final question. Everything you just said, you listed things that take up your time and that you care a lot about, and you're really busy. And we open this conversation by saying we know you through two different organizations that you didn't even name. So I also, in in researching you, read that, and tell me if this is wrong, you mentor how many people a year? Well, it's not a year. It's more like over a lifetime and, and it's over 120. 120 people that you have given your time to. How do you take care of yourself? How do you say no? And how do you say yes? Yeah, I think... I think my mentor who, and I have coaches and they are, you know, Connie Frazier and Mark Strachan, who have, Connie's been known me since I was a junior in college. Mark has known me since my first job in advertising, well, in New York. And both of them are so important in my life. But one of the things they said is they loved my energy in the beginning. And I still have that kind of energy. But the thing is, I'm bal- I balance stuff really well. I think what I want to be better at is the spiritual quadrant because I do have my former spirituality, but I think I can pour more into that. With family, everyone knows, if you look at my social media, family and work is like, inter- it's like you can't separate the two, you know? If you look at your social media, it's work, family, your niece. Your niece yeah, is like yeah. her own channel. Yeah, yeah she, she, and actually she has her own channel. It's so funny. And I actually got a media request for her and I was like, really? Like, do you run this channel? No, her mom does. Her okay. Mom, she's a content machine, but 
I am able to balance all aspects simply because each one of them inform the other and make and give me fuel for the other. When the outside was open, self-care was really big for me. It still is. I take care of myself, meditate, I sleep. I try to get as much sleep. Obviously, when I'm hanging out with my niece, that get, that goes down to three hours, probably two. You know, being a really good daughter to my mom is super important to me. She's my best friend. She had me at 20. And so we both kind of grew up together. And, you know, being a sister, but being a mentor has been really special because I started peer mentoring in high school. And I got so much from that. And I still do that. And, you know, people look at the number and they're like, come on, Tiff. Someday, you know, maybe a publisher would be like, can you write them all? Like, whatever the case may be, I can, because these individuals inform me and I'm still learning so much from them. And I don't even call it mentoring. I feel like it's coaching because it could be a one hour conversation or it could be a problem they have for a week. I'm not, you know, raising my hand to consistently solve everybody's problem. But if I have the wisdom and you give me a problem that you have and I've gone through it or, I can offer you something I can't hold back. And I think that's why the number keeps growing because I can't stop talking about helping people and about, you know, imparting my wisdom. But yeah, a hundred plus is crazy. And a lot of them came from my time at, at the four A's running the mate program. I was their mentor then and it just never ended. So an interest of your time, because that I'm amazed and it's also stressing me out. I'm like, she's got things to do. So let's, let's go to our lightning round. Now that most of us are working from home. What's replaced your morning commute? My morning commute has been replaced with, and I never had this, a routine where I probably consume 13 vitamins. It's crazy. Over time, I've developed this really great vitamin protocol. So I do that and have coffee. Honestly, I watch TV that takes my mind off of the world. The last show you binge watched? Hollywood. Oh, I didn't watch it yet. You like it? Unbelievable. You know, I'm biased because Janet Mock is a good friend and she is, she was one of our first Catalyst honorees and she's just, she's so important to the culture. She's amazing, but her work was incredible. So that, I just got lost in that world for several hours. Insecure is one of my favorites. So watching TV that feeds me and takes me off the world. And then I get right into meetings. And one of the things that I discovered is that I used to just fill my days with meetings and did it pre-COVID, was doing it in covid and I said, if I have one or two meetings a day, that's it. I need time to think, to strategize, to come up with stuff, to actually execute. And I think many of us get caught in that vortex of meetings. So I've really taken the time to, to look at that and reevaluate that. But that's, that's replaced my, my commute. What is one word a direct report would use to describe you? It's two words. Um, gentle push. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have this technique where I'm like, yeah, I think it would be good for you to um, speak in front of a thousand people. Like, look, it's totally cool. You're going to do this and you're going to be great. And you got it. I'll be in the audience. I got you. So I have this, you know, my, my mentees will say it. They'll be like, Tiff and her gentle push. It really isn't a gentle push. I'm actually throwing you off the cliff. Who's your emergency phone call? Oh God, I don't want to get in trouble with this. So I'll say what is expected. My mom and my boo... Um, my my boyfriend of 11 years. But certainly if like emergency call late at night, like I have to talk through things, it might be Connie and Mark. They're so good at talking me off the ledge. It's incredible. It should be patented. They're so good. <laughs> What's the worst piece of advice you've gotten? Oh, this is a good one. That's cute and all with ad color, but you're going to run out of people to award because you know there's not a lot of people of color in advertising. You're going to run out. Like you guys are not going to go past year three. Um, I'm adding in a new question. Who is someone you think we should have on this show? That's amazing. I think someone who 
I highly regard and who's super, super special is Gian Doherty. Um, so every two weeks I get on a call with, and maybe you can have all of them or all of us, but I get on a call with female founders, black female founders. We actually, the group is called BFF. So in this group, it's black female founders who have founded consequential movements in the last like five, six, seven years. So it's, you know, Amani Ellis from CultureCon. It's um, all the incredible ladies from Curly Girl Collective, Gian Doherty, who um, founded the Wellness Summit, um, particularly addressing issues of wellness for women of color. She also has this incredible product line called Organic Bath, Tori and Victoria, or Elizabeth and Victoria, from The Colored Girl. And all of them fundamentally, Brandis Daniel from um, Harlem Fashion Row. I'm saying all their names because I want to say their names because they're all so special. The, the laughter and the fun and just like not thinking about the movements, huge movements that we're responsible for. And just having conversations as Black women is what I most appreciate. So it'd be interesting to have a skim moment with all of them. You'll laugh so hard. Uh, you'll make new best friends. And you, you're giving a platform to women who are really doing extraordinary work and building communities and building people up. I love that. Tiffany, thank you. I honestly feel very honored to know you and have you on the show. Thank, thank you. I love you guys. And I'm so excited that all my world, my worlds have come together with you guys now. Uh, no. <laughs> Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. Hi, everyone. My name is Trinity Muzan Walford, and I am the co-founder of Gold. We are a Brooklyn-based health and beauty brand powered by Superfoods. I started my business actually sort of inspired by my own experiences in the wellness space. I was feeling really caught between that kind of like crunchy granola stuff that I had grown up with. And then the other side of it, these ultra prestige offerings um, that were more luxe and didn't really resonate with me. And certainly I couldn't afford them. <laughs> so I really believed in this idea of taking wellness and making it approachable and easy for everyone. Navigating COVID-19 has presented such an interesting set of challenges, um, both for the business and, and, you know, for myself personally. You know, on the business side, it's interesting because we certainly saw some of the hardships that a lot of businesses have seen, um, mostly tied to a lot of our retail partnerships. So obviously, a lot of our retailers have shut down their operations temporarily. We sort of lost that revenue channel for a bit. But what was interesting is that we saw, because we're in this sort of wellness and like at home self care space, we saw a jump in demand for our products D2C on our website. So um, we really had to just very quickly pivot our focus. We previously were about 50 50 retail partnerships to uh, selling direct to consumer on the website. And so following COVID-19, we really just had to dive into the, the more direct to consumer strategy. So that's been an interesting piece for us um, professionally. I, I think personally, I co-founded the business with my life partner, my now my fiance as of like six months ago, which still feels very fresh. <laughs> but so we already worked from home and we had a remote team. So a lot of those transitions weren't 
too tough for me. Uh, Asking for my favorite gold product is definitely like asking a mother to choose a child. I would say the one that I really recommend folks start out with is our cacao turmeric superfood latte blend. It's basically like a healthy hot cocoa. And I personally really love that in my morning coffee. So if you already have that morning coffee ritual, it's a really easy thing to do. You're not, you know, having to create this whole new wellness routine. So you guys can find gold on Instagram. I'd say that's definitely our largest channel. So we're just at gold, G-O-L-D-E. And then our website is just gold.co. So you can shop all of our products there and learn more about our story as well. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 